Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of My JavaScript Story. Uh, this week, we're talking to Chris Heilman. Chris, do you want to say hello? Hello. Now, just do you want to just quickly remind people who you are and what you do? I'm Chris. Uh, I've been web developing for about 20 years. I've been, I worked for lots of agencies, did very large websites, and then I started working for Yahoo. And from Yahoo, I went on to Mozilla, worked there on Firefox OS and a few other things, and the MDN docs. And then I went to Microsoft four years ago, where I'm currently working at the Edge team, uh, bringing the new browser out and basically making sure that Internet Explorer is not a thing that we need to use all the time, and we're actually up to date and bringing lots of enterprise customers to the newer web as well. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So, if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. That's cool. And uh, the Chrome team, or sorry, the, the Edge team just made an announcement that you guys are moving over to Chromium. You want to just briefly tell us about that before we get into your story? Um, well, it's, yeah, it was, a, it was just a very pragmatic decision. We, we thought like, okay, what do we do? We, we have a browser that people want. We, we thought everybody would upgrade to Windows 10 and uh, then get the new browser. So we didn't make it backwards compatible with older Windows versions. And then we realized that didn't happen as much as we wanted it to be. But we realized that the browser is basically much more than the rendering engine. It's actually more the UX of the browser and the services that come with the browser. So we thought, why not actually shift to uh, Chromium? where we can be on older Windows, newer Windows, Mac, and everywhere else where the Chromium engine runs. And the other thing that we found interesting as a challenge was that Chromium runs the web. It runs not only Chrome, but it also runs Node, it runs Electron. So we thought, okay, if this is an yeah. open source project, this is de facto web. So there should be more than one big player in there. And that's why we thought, give it a go. And now we're actually part of the Chromium team. And we're basically, we put like over 400 pull requests in there already. And we met with the Chrome team and they were uh, quite excited how far we've come in half a year releasing our browser on the Chromium project. So I personally, as an open source project, a person and open web person, I find it sad that we'd have one engine less, but I find it much more interesting for the future of the web that the engine that the web runs on is not owned by or mostly contributed to by one company. Yeah, that makes sense. I'm, I'm a little curious. Are you moving off of uh, Shockcore to V8? Yes, or, we do. Oh, cool. So you're, you're, you're taking on whole hog. Well, the thing is like it comes, it comes bundled with the, uh, with the Chromium engine. And the main thing is also that we found even with Chakra Core, when we released it, that we had to release a lot of shims to make it compatible with what people are writing for. Cause a lot of, uh, especially Electron code is uh, catered to V8 and not necessarily to the ECMAScript standard. Yeah. So we had to find a lot of ways to actually make that work. And we realized putting all that effort into making things work on this side, it actually makes more sense to contribute at the core. No, that makes sense. 
So uh, I'm going to transition this over because I think we should just do a JavaScript Jabber episode on this and just dig, dig in deep. Uh, yeah, let's, um, let's, do a, let's do a dedicated one and maybe get some more people in. It might be interesting. Yep, absolutely. So let's talk about you. How did you get into programming? Well, I mean, I always was fascinated by computers. I always was fascinated by, uh, by as a kid growing up, watching movies like Tron, and I'm like, this is so cool. This is a different world. And I, I guess that movie was basically telling me there's a world inside computers, and I'm like, this is awesome. So I started very early on with, like, uh, getting my first computer in a flea market and write, starting writing BASIC, and then it was a Commodore 64, so I actually learned assembly language on that thing as well and started coding, like, really little games and little like intros and these kind of things in the demo scene. And then I, um, I realized out of a sudden there's a, there's actually a, a, a career in that as well, but I didn't start as a programmer. I started as a radio journalist. So I was a, uh, I was a newscaster at a ro local radio station and I did the whole gaming, uh, writing little games and stuff in my free time. And then the internet came around and I'm like, this is amazing. Now I can use my media knowledge and my media um, affinity and my programming uh, knowledge to, to get a job. And uh, as I was one of the first people that actually built websites in my area and then later on Germany wide, I got a good contract with BMW to work for them. And that's how I got into programming oh, wow. into, the web, uh, into the web as a whole. So it was right moment, right time. I never been to university. I didn't finish any proper job education. I was just lucky, I guess. That's cool. And, and it's interesting too. I mean, I know a lot of people that, yeah, they, they didn't get a degree. They just wound up working on the web and then, yeah, they ended up working on the web. So. And, and I hope that keeps up. I mean, I love that a lot of people yeah. come from sideways into the market and not like in a normal, like you got to become a web developer and here's your course and here's your degree and then you get a job. I'm now interviewing a lot of developers in Africa where we just opened new, uh, new offices. And uh, it, it's amazing how hungry people are and how wonderful the web is as a, uh, as a first career for a lot of people that would not get any other job that easily that is that's that exciting and that flexible. Yep, absolutely. So uh, I'm curious when you got into the web, a lot of people get in, got into the web a while back. They got into a back language or HTML, and then um, they wound up moving more toward the front end gradually. Was that a, your experience, or have you always been mostly focused on JavaScript and the front end? Well, seeing that I was so excited about building things, I was always like, and, and visual things, uh, JavaScript was a very early thing that I was interested in. And it was also a good, um, it was a good career move at that time. And that was during DHTML times where basically like everybody, I remember like writing pop-up windows that wrote frame sets with document right inside those pop-up windows. And then three windows had to talk to each other because we simulated apps that way back then. And luckily enough, sooner or later, we got W3C standard, especially the DOM standard to get rid of all this horrible, horrible hacks that we had to use. But it was, uh, uh, for me, it was exciting as well because I was a lot on, in public transport and trains and you basically, you didn't have access to the server. So JavaScript was something that for me always worked offline and worked on the file system or on a local server. I mean, I also started with Perl and uh, then later on I did a lot of PHP development. I wrote a few PHP CMS, like I guess everybody did. And uh, then I realized like JavaScript is becoming more and more interesting to me, but I've always been more fascinated by the UI part of JavaScript to actually on the front end to do things with, to make it easier for end users to use systems and uh, avoid having like a reload of the page and avoid having things 
while not being uh, while still being accessible. So one of the first tutorials that I've written and published was uh, unobtrusive unobtrusive JavaScript to explain to people how to use JavaScript that is just an enhancement rather than just relying on it. Because a lot of back then, and we sadly enough still have a lot of ahref JavaScript links that don't do anything when you click on them when some JavaScript problem happened or if the if the environment that you're in right now doesn't support JavaScript. So I mean, from the very beginning, I wanted to make sure that people use JavaScript in a in a nice way for the end user and to make it as an enhancement rather than like, oh, everybody now needs to upgrade to my thing. Back when the Flash was a big thing, there was always the 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 argument that we had with that environment where they're like, well, everybody has Flash, and uh, turns out it didn't anymore when the when the iPad and the iPhone came out. So that was a bet that was great for uh, for right. quite a long time to make a lot of money, but JavaScript is still here. But I still, it's up to us to keep using it in a sensible manner and not just like because we can. Yeah, I agree. Um, I'm, I'm curious. So you get into JavaScript. You said you're, you've been fascinated by the UN or the UI part of things. Uh, I'm, I'm curious, uh, you know, as your career progressed, how did that play into things? Because you mentioned uh, before we got rolling that you had worked for Yahoo and, um, you know, a few other uh, companies that people have heard of and, you know, now you're at Microsoft. So yeah, how how is that all translated into your career? Um, very much. Uh, I mean, we always need interfaces in the end. Something has to be there and actually run. And the more we can do on the end user's machine, the uh, the less server traffic we have. I mean, nowadays it's like uh, it's much easier with the fast connections that we have and how cheap hosting is. But when you work, for example, in Yahoo and you had like three million users using the front page a day or even an hour, I think, or something like that, every byte that you can save is a good idea. So being a good JavaScript engineer in these companies made a difference in the performance of the thing and also in the traffic of the bit. And uh, yeah, my, Yahoo was a very interesting one because uh, I used micro, I used JavaScript professionally for years and years. And uh, I got money for it and people thought I know what I was doing and I thought I know what I was doing. And then I wrote my first JavaScript book in 2006 uh, where it's about DOM scripting and, uh, and Ajax. First Ajax book actually that came out and luckily enough, a few more came after that. And uh, when you start writing a book, you realize you, you actually cannot fake it any longer. You have to actually know what you're doing and you have to explain it to people. So you have to explain it to yourself first. And uh, in Yahoo, I was super excited to work with people like Douglas Crockford. And uh, uh, he was one of my first code reviewers in the company, which is scary. But turned out he was actually quite okay with what I've been writing. And uh, then I worked uh, on the Yahoo, uh, Yahoo user interface library, the YUI, which is now kind of like, farm sourced you know mm -hmm. it's out on the farm with the other open source libraries where somebody maintains it but we don't know who uh, but the team that was on yui was just an incredibly amount of co of colleagues that were super intelligent in what they were doing one of the best documented libraries at that time as well and everybody that i worked with back then is still a big number in javascript like nicolas sarkas and uh, and a lot of people went to other companies like salesforce where they do the uh, the uh, component libraries there I worked with the Flickr team, which innovated a lot of great stuff in 2007, 2006. They're all now at Slack. Uh, it basically shows that when you're interested in building interfaces for end users, you have to talk to so many more people than when you just build backend code where you have to talk to the database and the server. And hopefully you get uh, a spec from the um, 
yeah. business analyst and the product manager and you have to turn it into something where it's like as soon as you build an interface it's already a conversation and that means you have to talk to more people in the company and that is actually good for your career because sooner or later we have to interact with humans ultimately whatever you're building you're building and solve a problem for somebody somewhere and so yeah you have to be aware of the interface even if it's a level or two out from what you're building I always annoyed about the fight that we have right now between front end and back end and like uh, and also like full stack kind of thing and whenever there's a there's an argument between CSS and JavaScript it it just fascinates me I mean to me a good product on the web uses JavaScript HTML and CSS and all of them to their best degree all of those technologies for what mm -hmm. they're good for and I find it uh, depressing that over the years CSS and JavaScript have become kind of like a parallel technologies to do the same things. And JavaScript is always the one that gives you more granularity and also gives you uh, in, in actually more responsibility. So it's very easy to build a broken interface with JavaScript. It's much harder to build a broken interface with CSS if you know what you're doing. And the main right. thing, when people complain about CSS not being like JavaScript and you're like, well, yeah, that's by design, that's a good idea. So if you're not interested in how a technology works, why do you do it and, and become unhappy? This market is big enough for us to collaborate with other people. And in essence, that's what you want to do if you want to build a product that is sustainable because sooner or later you will be sick or you have to get out and somebody else has to do other bits and you want to be interested in the things that you do. So dragging that whole uh, uh, stack with you and saying like, I'm a JavaScript developer, but I also need to do the CSS and I hate doing it then don't do it. That's the main point because you will not do a good job. You will basically use the technology in a fashion that it was meant, not meant to be, much like when, when back, back in jQuery days when I interviewed people for JavaScript jobs and they're like, well, I only know jQuery. I thought you needed that. And I'm like, well, no, we don't write a browser in jQuery. This is not how it works. Right. So how did you get to the point where you were actually working on uh, browser technology instead of building web applications? Well, I built, built web applications for a long time and I found, uh, I found out that the browser has a lot of times was, the, uh, was the, the, the blocker and the confusion moment to me. It was always at the beginning, browsers were black boxes. Like when you didn't work for the company, you had no access to know what's coming or what they're doing. And I was really excited when Firefox came around and then when other browsers followed suit and all the browser makers out of a sudden were available on the internet for you to give feedback to and in some mm -hmm. cases even to contribute back to the browser. And I thought, okay, I've, I've done the building the products thing. If somebody else can take that away from me, I'd rather go where the problems happen and where documentation is needed and where information flow is not as good as it should be. And that also included developer tools. Like cause when browsers started uh, building developer tools inside the browser, I realized there's a great opportunity there to help developers and I wanted to be part of that. So that's why uh, Mozilla and Firefox was a great uh, company to work for because everything is open and uh, you have to work in the open with the things and you, you, you learn to contribute and you learn to deal with contributors and to get demands from people. And I found that for my career, not necessarily uh, uh, the best thing in terms of like starting my own company and becoming a CTO and getting like VC funding, but I, I, I'm very happy having contributed that much back through these products to the people to empower anybody to become that. So I, I found it a next uh, interesting step for me forward 
in technologies to support and browsers and uh, developer tools and developer environments like Visual Studio Code and these kind of things are all written in the languages that I learned back then. I didn't have to do when when we started building these things with TypeScript rather than C plus plus. It got much more interesting for me because I don't know C plus plus. So, um, so I'm curious, what what projects have you worked on that you're particularly proud of or you're excited to have been a part of? I mean, I, I'm, I'm super excited about Visual Studio Code. I haven't worked that much directly with it. I, I'm, I helped a lot with the documentation. I, I wrote a few extensions kind of things and like uh, add-ons to the operating to the system itself. But I also worked with uh, Adobe people on brackets before and uh, some of the other editors that in the browser. And I, was, I think that was the big breakthrough for, for front-end technologies in the developer space. Like Visual Studio Code has taken the market by storm and with good reason because it gives you the functionality of a huge IDE and a lightweight environment of a text editor. And I, I'm very excited that, that we have this kind of product. I also thought YUI was a, was a breakthrough uh, uh, in the, in the, in the library space back then because it was highly documented. It was uh, it was backed by a large corporation that actually put a lot of money and effort into it rather than just like a product that then grew wild in the open source space. So that was a really good one as well. Um, Firefox OS was really exciting to work on as well because I think what we have in HTML5 now across browsers, like the camera access, the media access, the, uh, the, the start of things like web workers and service workers and, uh, and local storage came from that research that basically Mozilla took the, uh, took the stance of saying, like, we want to build an operating system on HTML. And uh, I know it sounds crazy, but we're going to do it. And this was, uh, uh, this was a, an exciting time to work there. And I think there's a lot of products that uh, over time uh, changed the, uh, the the web, and this was one of those that kickstarted it. Uh, same with like, uh, I wish I had worked more on Chrome when it started. I wish I had worked more on on a few other things, but uh, I mean, you can only do so many things out there. And um, I always got more excited about the documentation of things and the making it available to people and writing the training. Uh, uh, tutorials for other people to get into a certain technology than necessarily work on the technology itself. Because I think that skill set is not as common. It's really hard to find somebody who who is technical, who, who can write the thing, but also document it and explain it to other people out there and make it available for people or understandable to people. And I, I wished our community would appreciate that a lot more as well, because that's, uh, that's a great way to get our community a bit more diverse, that we actually if we gave people who wrote documentation and make things understandable to other people, the same respect we gave to the original developers, I think we would have a more, a more diverse and interesting market to play in. Yeah. I, I love the idea of just opening up more things to more developers. Um, and it seems like every time we have a breakthrough where, you know, some new capability comes out, um, people find new and interesting ways to take advantage of it. Yeah. And the edge thing, of course, was a huge one for me. I mean, uh, Microsoft tried to hire me for years and years and I was never that interested. And uh, then uh, I came in and they offered me a job working on a new browser. It was the, just a, a secret back then that we're like, yeah, we're going to rewrite a browser from scratch and we're going to get rid of Internet Explorer as the main browser. And I'm like, yeah, I'm happy to help you with that because I want to go where, where the change is needed. And uh, when Edge came out, it was a much needed change because uh, Internet Explorer 11 was basically on a maintenance mode already. And mm -hmm. we didn't, 
as much as we as much as we despise it, there is a big opportunity in having a browser that's part of the operating system. Like people don't want to understand and don't want to under, download another browser. There's a lot of people that are happily going to the office at nine o'clock in the morning, turn on the computer and click on one icon to open the 10 websites that they have to work with and maybe a news website out there. And we might think that those people don't contribute to the web, but a lot of them work on products that are incredibly important. I just helped the insurance company shift 70,000 machines from Internet Explorer to Edge into a modern browser. And that's 24.5 million end users now that will get richer and more interesting interfaces because the developers of those of that company can now rely on a better, um, uh, a better like base on to work off from. Yeah, that makes sense. So is, is that primarily what you're working on now? Or do you have other like, uh, projects that you're working on on your own or? There's a few. I mean, like I'm working on the browser as my main job and I'm on that team and I'm working with the enterprise team to do a lot of outreach for customers like that because it's also quite useful for me sitting in Europe and my rest of my team is in America. So I got a lot of, uh, especially German and French companies don't necessarily want their data to go somewhere in the US. They're super excited having somebody local to explain to them what where their data goes and these kind of things. I'm what. I'm also part of a, a W3C discussion group uh, where we're trying to get machine learning into the browser in, as a JavaScript API to That'd basically cool. do, uh, do machine learning and uh, to also use pre-trained models in a, uh, in a native API for the browser. So that's something I'm actually very excited about because I think machine learning is for me the next evolution of development. I mean, I gave talks about this and I really believe it as well. Like we always get excited about like as a coder, we're never replaceable, we're not automatable. But then when you look at like what we're doing, what we're building these days, there's a lot of websites that all look the same. There's even a lot of apps that look the same. And these could be done by a program as well. A program could write or generate these things and companies like Wix and Squarespace who I'm working with are actually using uh, using machine learning on the, on the interface to see what their end users want and build code on the fly rather than somebody having it to code by hand. The same way when we think about the node environment, most people use like lots and lots of NPM packages and then put a little code on top of that. An algorithm could choose the right packages and even make sure it is the right package and not someone, some, something with a wrong name that just tries to be the one and be there. So I don't think that uh, programming, hardcore programming is the thing that uh, will be that relevant for a long time because we machines have become clever enough and reuse that we have as developers has become intense enough that we can actually cover 90% of what we need to do for end users with computers and 10% in a very creative fashion where we should be thinking about what to do next. And I think bringing machine learning to the web is a very important part because a lot of a lot of artificial intelligence, as we call it, is basically sold as dark magic and we don't know where the data goes. We don't know where your data is retained. So uh, democratizing that more and bringing that more into an open source environment like the web, I think is a very important step of that kind of uh, uh, cool part of our new technologies. Yeah, I'd love to see, I mean, what you're talking about makes a lot of sense. And yeah, you know, if, if it's just data in, data out, you know, and displaying it in, you know, I want it displayed in this way, this way, or this way, then yeah, there's no reason why an AI couldn't just write that. Yeah, we're all, we're all super excited about reuse, but then we always claim we always have to write everything by hand anew. And yeah. like, I mean, don't repeat yourself should be probably something we do with our tools as well, because as much as, uh, as it sounds boring to me, 
you know, as much as reusing other people's code, just to stack it, stick it together and put something there. It's quite impressive to see what people are doing. There was this at some conference was this 11 year old kid that used TensorFlow to do hand gesture recognition on his camera. And for him was just a normal way to build things. Like he didn't even, yep. uh, he didn't even think about building something from scratch. He's like, Oh, there's all these cool Lego bricks that I can put together and make something out of it. And I, 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 could, I love that because it means that uh, people can build products and they don't need to be a hardcore programmer to build any uh, a simple product like a mom and pop shop or a little app for your friends to actually meet each other on. Yep. Absolutely. So when we brought you on to the show, we, we brought you on, I think it was episode 332 or something close to that. And we talked about um, you learned JavaScript. Now what? Um, how long <laughs> have you been blogging? Since 2006. So yeah, it's been a while. And how do you decide what to cover in your blog? Oh, it started as a scratch pad for myself. Every, every time I found something out, I just wrote a blog post about it and explained it uh, to myself and then shared that with the world. And that was a really successful way of writing a blog. People are re really thankful for that. And I find it myself, whenever I forgot something and type it into Google or Bing, I find my own blog from like five years ago and I'm like, damn it, I forgot this and I wrote about it. So <laughs> it's an interesting thing. But um, I think your excitement should run your blog, not like what, what gives you the most click-throughs and what gives you the most ad revenue. I gave up on ad revenue on my blog. I mean, I used to, get some good money from my blog. There was a good secondary income. I mean, it wasn't amazing, but at least it was like in four digits per month. And mm -hmm. nowadays, the more people had ad blockers, it, it just wasn't worthwhile for me. And I didn't want some third party code on my, bra on my blog that actually might do things to my readers that I don't know. So I don't care. So I basically turned off the ads and I, my RSS feed also has the full blog posts in it. So no click through and please come to my site and subscribe to it because I see the web still as a wonderful collection of destinations and not like something you go and you have to stay. Right. That's cool. Um, if people want to find your blog, where do they go? Christianheilman.com. Nice. It was interesting um, because I, I, I cross post a lot on medium as well. Cause medium, I think it's a beautiful interface for people giving feedback and for in uh, in context commenting that I don't have to care about that I don't actually have to do the the spamming uh, spam removal and the the malware removal and kind right. of things so, so the medium does that for me and then a lot of people of course got angry when medium changed to the model that they're now having a paywall which is like, well, there is no free, sorry. How many times do we, do we have to go for that bait and switch to understand it? But uh, I got a free account for Medium because I wrote for them. So they asked me like, okay, here's your free account. Can you keep writing for us? And every time when somebody complains about it, well, the thing is on my blog as well because nobody stops me from that. When I start working, when I start writing on my blog first and then I publish it somewhere else, nobody can stop me from doing that. If I get paid to publish something at a certain channel, of course, I shouldn't put it for free on my blog as well because people basically need to make the money back that they gave me, but that doesn't happen that often. That, that, that happens more with video courses, I think. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, I remember seeing the, um, there was a little bit of drama out there about free code camp moving off of Medium. Yeah. And, you know, who owned the articles and things like that. But And, and you know, I, I think everybody has to make their decision based on, you know, what's important to them. But yeah. It makes sense to me. And a lot of this stuff is put out free with hopes that you'll, you know, you'll, you'll put money down or somebody else will put money down to, you know, support it. Yeah. That's just business. That's, that's life. 
And it's weird, isn't it? I mean, we, we always complain about ads and then we put ad blockers on and then we complain about ads becoming more intrusive and you're like, well, they got to make money somehow, you know, if you're okay. I mean, I'm I'm spending about $100 a month on Patreon where I support different products online and I think it's okay, I can afford this and I think that makes sense. Like, I'd rather, I'd rather do that than see things that I love being covered in terrible ads. Yeah, that, that makes sense too. And it's interesting because, I mean... I haven't gotten a complaint for a while about the ads in the podcast, but yeah, it's the same thing, right? I've, I've had some people um, come to me and basically tell me what I should do with the ad revenue. I've had people come to me and tell me I should get rid of the ads. And it's like, well, if, if you want me to spend the time on this, I have to be able to eat and pay, you know, have electricity to my house and, you know, well, it's put almost clothes like- on my kids and stuff like that. So, yeah. It's almost like opinions are cheap, right? I mean, I don't know, like, I mean, like the same with like, I used, I, I organized one event in my life, but I helped a lot of events and I helped a lot of co- events in my company. And I'm getting very tired of people publicly uh, accusing events of doing something wrong and doing something there. And I'm like, well, then contact them. If you know better and you want to yeah. contribute, most of them want you to contribute. So it's just very easy to criticize after the fact the same. I just wrote a blog post about that as well, with how we're super excited about uh, uh, pointing out flaws in technology and flaws in products. And we don't even know what, what, what led to that flaw. Like most of the time, it's not the developer. It's not the JavaScript person that wanted to use that horrible pop-up thing or modal thing. It was a third party chosen by some marketing person or by some salesperson on top of what you built. We're not in control of the products that we put online as soon as they get a certain size. There's a lot of other people involved. And when you talk to people like uh, um, uh, CSS Wizardry and those people who do performance tests, and they said like, yeah, most of the performance horrible things are not the original code. They're actually the third party things that get put on top of your products. And that means you should, as the JavaScript person, start looking who else is actually maintaining that thing above you and actually undoing all the good that you've been doing in your performance environment. Yep. I love that we have a different environment nowadays that like uh, I worked on with WebHint as well. And, uh, and, uh, and also we look, of course, we work, we work closely with the people who do like Lighthouse now that we're on Chromium as well. And it's just fascinating how well, uh, documented and how wonderful our development environments are now. When I have a linter oh, yeah. inside my Visual Studio Code, I don't even make mistakes anymore. The editor tells me when I'm making a mistake before I save it and put it to my server. And that's just so much better than learning to be the debugging god. I mean, teaching people best practices or even like proper syntax while they're coding rather than like while they're debugging, I think is a wonderful way to become much more effective. And uh, with our environments that we have right now, you can do all kind of like testing on the fly. I mean, we've got all the headless browsers. We got the JavaScript engines that you can use on the command line to do automated tasks and automated testing as well. I mean, crazy things like uh, like like uh, doing screenshots with headless browsers and then overlaying them and getting the getting the pixel distance of the, of three different renderings with four different browsers is just a wonderful thing to see. And uh, whenever when people always get like, oh, I need the next exciting thing. I'm like, here's a really exciting thing for you to look at. Like the automation of the web that we do right now is not quite there where it should be yet. And there's a lot of stuff to be explored in this environment. Yeah, I agree. And it's funny because I, I talk to people that have been programming for a long time. And yeah, I mean, I mean, I remember even 10 years ago, 
you know, where, where the tooling was at and, and the, the situation, you know, where the browsers were at and things like that. And some of the issues we had to deal with and people don't even think about those things anymore because they've just, they've been solved. Yeah. And I mean, people coming from other environments as well, people who use Visual Studio, like C-sharp developers or Java developers, and they, they actually show me how, how they're using the environment and what they expect from a development environment to cover before they even start writing code. Whereas we're like, yeah, text editor and browser, that's all I need. But we're building very complex things these days and uh, people's identity and people's security and people's uh, money in, in, in the long run are also dependent on how how much quality we put out on the web because people are relying on us to actually do something amazing. And I think it's, it's just not right if we get super excited about like, here's what I can do as a developer to do things faster. And I don't care about the quality. In essence, it boils down to privacy, security, accessibility, and maintainability. This, so these are the four things that make a product interesting. The rest is just nice to have, and the rest is actually more, more in the hand of marketing and the design department to do it right. But uh, to keep it secure should be one of our main concerns. And most of the time, we don't even know what we're using. We're like, okay, I got this 150 NPM packages that most likely haven't been updated for half a year, but I don't want to think about an update path. I don't want to make it easy to update i got the thing done i want to move into the next one <laughs> it's just a very cowboy way of coding i think yeah so uh i, I kind of need to move us into the next segment of the show and that's picks but before i do that um how do people find you online you already mentioned your blog yeah it's christianheimer.com it's code poet on twitter with a number at the end epo that's the easiest way to reach me. Um, I'm also hanging on uh, on a Slack channel, but yeah, it's a lot of like contribution. Um, so, and of course, I'm helping with the WebHint uh, IO uh, Twitter account and with the MS Edge Dev Twitter account. So these are where you can reach me. Poet, easiest way to actually. Cool. All right. Well, uh, do you have some picks? Do you have some things you want to chat out about? Well, I mean, mostly VS Code. I mean, we don't just have to shout about it anymore, but I, uh, uh, there's great stuff happening there. Uh, Webhint.io Webhint is something uh, I'm working with as well with the team, especially right now. That's also something that is now an extension for the browser. So you can put that into, for example, Firefox to have it part of the developer tools, which is pretty amazing. Uh, so this is basically like Lighthouse, but it's much more configurable. So you can actually turn things on and off that you won't, don't want tested that are not necessarily applicable to your product. And also it means that you can write your own uh, tests. So you basically, if you need to check that every website has a picture of a leprechaun in the, in the footer, you can write a simple uh, JSON object for that to test that in a continuous integration environment as well. So... This is something that gets me uh, really excited about it. I just want to get, I just, I'm just amazed how far some of the uh, publications online have come as well. Like CSSTricks.com is incredibly mm -hmm. amazing what they're doing these days. Dev2 is a, is a super interesting little channel for throwing out little blog things if you want to be part of that environment. And they're super nice people, what I found so far. Um, I'm learning a lot from, uh, from CodePen, CodePen.io. They're, they're just mm -hmm. incredibly, I mean, they've been around for quite a while as well, but it's just such a creative environment. It's not a JS bin. It's not a JS fiddle. It's not something where you just throw some code and see if it works, but it's where people, uh, 
where people are creative with technology, much like they are where they used to be with Flash. They do a lot of stuff on CodePen right now, and they also write articles around it, how they've done it. So that's uh, that's something that I that I find really fascinating to me. And when it comes to uh, to to channels where to go to learn things, I mean, every conference I go to releases the videos, and I'm I'm always fascinated by how many views those videos don't have. There's a lot of money being spent on producing talk videos, on uh, mixing the slides in and then publishing them on the web. I think it's worthwhile to actually for a lot of people to watch these things if they don't uh, have the money or the opportunity to go to events like that. And most of them are available for download as well. So if you're in an environment where streaming is not a thing for you, I put them actually on my mo- on my mobile phone. I download a lot of them on my mobile phone and I watch them in the gym. So on a cross trainer, a 40 minute uh, JavaScript talk is like 600 calories and that's better than watching two more episodes of a stupid TV show you already seen. Yep. Nice. Um, I've got a few shout outs of my own. Yeah, I really like Visual Studio Code. Um, and uh, I use the Emacs extension for that. And yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah so if you're, if you're accustomed to, you know, a particular text editor, I mean, migrating is really easy. Um, another pick that I have, and this, this speaks to the browser specifically, is that you mentioned that, you know, security and, and privacy need to be um, top concern. And in using Chrome, I actually had two plugins that I was using. Um, one was Privacy Badger and the other one was, um, it stopped autoplay videos on, on websites. And it turns out that the latest version of Firefox has those just built in. Yeah, so, uh, privacy patch of something I've used for years and years as well. It's quite amazing. There's also the uh, Disconnect Me, which is an uh-huh. interesting one. There's also, uh, there's also a company that provides the whitelist or the blacklist for a lot of like malware sites that a lot of browsers use internally. So that one is an interesting one as well, but you always kind of break the, you always got to be careful not to break the, 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 the technologies because sometimes it's not a tracker what's going on there because there's some weird detection problem. Yeah. Of, of course, what I didn't mention, which is terrible because I'm not a salesperson and uh, Microsoft Edge Insider.com. So if you really want to work with the, if you want to get, try out the new uh, Edge that we're working on right now, the Chromium Edge, it's on Microsoft Edge Insider.com. You can download it for Windows. You can download it for Mac. And there is a, there's a canary build, which is a nightly build. There's a dev build, which is weekly. And there's a beta build, which is like every four weeks, I think, at the moment. And we need a lot of people to kick the tires and, uh, and give us feedback. And there's a wonderful, there's a little smiley button in there. So if you find any problem on any website, you can just click the smiley button. It automatically generates a screenshot of the website that you've been at and puts the URL in. So all you have to do is describe the problem that you have and it goes directly to the right people. And I think that's a feedback mechanism that I wish more, uh, uh, more products had that are that directly to the end user. Nice. Well, um, we're pretty much out of time, but thanks for coming and talking to me for the last 45 minutes. Yeah, no problem. I mean, it was good fun and uh, anytime. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm going to go and uh, drive the rest of the way to San Jose. I'm going to be at the Velocity Conference. So um, oh, nice. if you were there, I'm sorry I missed you folks, uh, listeners. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, we're starting a new DevOps show. Um, we actually um, are taking over the Food Fight show. And we're going to rebrand it. It's going to be Adventures in DevOps. Uh, nice. And uh, yeah, so we've got a panel there. And I'm going to be lining up speakers for, or guests for them from the speakers and talking to some of the, the folks on the expo floor and just whoever I can meet there. So yeah, I'm looking forward to that. Excellent.
All right, Chris. Well, I'm going to go ahead and wrap this up. Um, thank you for coming, and uh, we'll catch everyone next week. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.